0: Good afternoon everyone. Welcome to the 57th Fireside Chat. We have some interesting questions today. We're going to start off though with one of the questions from the MBT forum about Tom's physics experiments. Let me read you what was just posted a few days ago. I was also sent out in the newsletter posted on Qsac on Facebook and uh, sent out to the uh, Qsac donors. Tom's experiments are being done by a team of credentialed academic professionals employed by a West Coast University that is under a year-long contract to CUSAC to perform the experiments outlined at the MBTLA 2016 event. This team, a collection of senior faculty and students, are enthusiastic about exploring the potential connection between physics and consciousness. QSAC's contract with the university took longer time than expected to finalize, but the team is now in the process of gathering the proper equipment and negotiating the learning curve required to set up the first experiment. Of course, QSAC's research project must be integrated with the team's normal teaching, learning, and mentoring duties. As experimental results become available however they turn out, Tom will provide a full disclosure and explanation of the results in various public forums, such as YouTube the newsletters and that is speaking events. All right, hope that answers your question for you. That's the latest. Going back to June 2019 Fireside Chat, part two at 30 minutes and 50 seconds. A question was answered for one of the MBT forum and um, they were not happy with the answer or he was not happy with the answer. For the sake of hearing the question for the first time, He says, I will rephrase it in my own way. Take as an example the quality of kindness. We experience the giving and receiving of kindness in this virtual reality, and it produces an emotion in us which is associated with that experience. We can have a similar experience by recalling memories of acts of kindness. However, if I say to somebody, I want you to feel kindness right now, we find we cannot do that without evoking some thought or memory. Simply thinking the word kindness in isolation does not bring forth the emotional reaction. Similarly, in an example you often use, we cannot just say, I'm going to feel angry right now, without an associated experience or memory. Without an actual experience or memory, it's just a word, a piece of data. In this case, a metaphor representing something. As you've explained before, anger, and indeed any other emotion, comes out of the being level. That makes complete sense within the rule set of this PMR, but does not seem to make sense in NPMR, where a word describing any emotion is just a word with no associated experience. You say that everything, absolutely everything, is data. So how are these emotional qualities carried over from one lifetime to the next? with no associated memories. I feel that this goes to the very heart of MBT, which should be able to explain everything. However, your answer to Fun I O U C that questioning, how this function of consciousness works, is extending the metaphor beyond what is useful. It sounded a little better than somebody saying, God moves in mysterious ways. It seemed that you were at a loss to explain it. You often say how MBT can explain the major paradoxes in physics, but this seems to be just as big a paradox as any double-slit experiment. You explain that one of the few assumptions of MBT is that consciousness exists. Do you need to add that emotional qualities are an aspect of consciousness that cannot be explained but just have to be accepted? Are we like Mr. Spock? Trying to understand the intangible emotional qualities of what makes Captain Kirk human and realizing that it cannot be explained with pure data?
1: Um,
2: there were about 15 or 20 questions there, all in a row. It's kind of hard to, to answer all that. I, hopefully, I'll get the right one. But yes, the very last question is that the idea of our experience, our, quali- our ability to have experience, our ability to assess that experience. That's just part of consciousness. Okay. Consciousness has memory, right? If you recall in the book, there were several things that consciousness has. One is memory. The other is processing. The other is a purpose. Okay, those are several of them. Uh, the purpose is required for the processing to have some idea whether the what's being experienced is good or bad, whether that's a... You know, something you should move toward doing more of or less of. So that's why it needs the purpose. Uh, If it didn't have memory, then every experience would be its first. So it has these these qualia. It does processing. That's how it determines, again, uh, you know, what it should do next based on what it has already done and what it has experienced. So that just comes in with consciousness, that there is memory. And with that memory comes, you know, we have experience. Experience requires a virtual reality. The virtual reality is defined just as a rule set. The rules may be very simple, like just communication protocols so that one entity can communicate to another. That's enough of a rule set to produce an experience, the experience of communicating, the experience of receiving a message, the experience of, of uh, com, you know, uh, composing a reply and sending that reply in return. All these things then are memories just that, it, that can exist because we have a rule set that defines communication protocols as a virtual reality. They okay? so without a virtual reality, without any rules, then there's no context which to define Experience. So one of your questions in there and maybe, you know, I was trying to keep track of all these questions, but it was a long question. And the time I got to the bottom, I'm, I'm not sure that I didn't, uh, you know, first grasp and then lose some of the questions that we we go through. So if this answer is not satisfactory, I would suggest, you know, we go through these one at a time or that you come on here and so that we can interact. More one at a time other than, you know, reading a very long thing and then having me reply to it in detail. Um, so try the questions one at a time if this doesn't work or come join us, I would say. All right, now one of the things you said was how come that um, a, a consciousness um, seems, to, seems to lose the Experience, okay, from, from one lifetime to another. That was one of the things. Well, that seemed to be a little different than the rest of the questions. It loses that experience because when that free will awareness unit is created to be the maker of choices for an avatar, that free will awareness unit is not given any intellectual data. It's only given that part of it that defines the quality of its consciousness. Okay, that's all it has. It doesn't come with information about what it did last time. Well, that doesn't mean that that's impossible. Those That situation can happen, but it's not normal. It's not the way it usually happens. The exceptions are probably exceptions that the LCS makes just to provide us with interesting things that help us see bigger pictures. Or maybe something that is so obsessive that uh, they want a little bit. It's necessary for what they're going to learn next time to start with some issues, if you will. Maybe a fear of spiders. So that's something they want to work on. So maybe they'll bring that with them into another lifetime just because that's something they need to work on. Maybe that, that was an obsession before and created a lot of other problems associated with it. So they bring that with them. So there may be special reasons why some people sometimes bring uh, emotional and even intellectual content from another life, but it's not the standard. It's not what happens most of the time. And all of those exceptions have reasons for why that exception is a good thing to do for that individual, Okay, whatever that answer to that question is. So Donna, refresh me on some of his first few questions so that I don't don't miss miss those. Uh,
0: I'm going to extract one. You say that everything, absolutely everything is data. So how are these emotional qualities carried over from one lifetime to the next with no associated memories? And I think he's talking about intellectual data of the avatar perhaps.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, that's a little bit, um, at least the first part of that is that The ability to have experience, the ability to have feelings, the ability to have interpretations of an experience based on what's on past experience, all of that is just a property of consciousness, what consciousness does. That's the fact that it has input, you know, and it processes the input, and it has memory. All of those things are properties of consciousness. So the ability to, uh, well, maybe we should get into a discussion of qualia. That's kind of the same thing. Um, You know, feelings about things. And qualia are not only feelings, they're they're differences in perception. And basically the way the qualia work is that in our biology, this is rule set now, in our biology, the rule set allows for all the possible permutations and combinations of all the various chromosomes and, you know, other, other things. When that sperm and egg come together, there are literally billions, trillions of possibilities of what can come out the other end. That's why no two people are exactly alike. Even twins that come from the same You know, zygote come from the same egg and sperm will have some differences. So and those differences, of course, expand as as their experience expands. Those differences begin to begin to grow. Um, But in any case, we're all different. And that's because there is such a huge number of ways that a person can come together to be. So our eyes are a little different. We see things differently. Somebody's cones and somebody's rods are slightly different than somebody else's cones and rods. Slightly more sensitive or less sensitive or whatever. You know, hearing, more sensitive, less sensitive. All our senses come in a almost an infinite variety of possibilities to where they're very acute or maybe they're not. Or maybe even we have what's called what uh, sent um senseia, something like that where you you combine senses you know you you combine maybe sight and smell so or uh you know well, you would smell a rose but you may get a, you know you may smell things that aren't really smell related your senses can can um kind of get get um that's not really confused it's just the way the wiring in your brain has gone together so that according to the rule set when you see a particular thing you may get a particular smell even though that thing doesn't have you know a, a, a smell associated with it to anybody else so all of this this variation in our biology allows us to experience things differently so we all see a different shade of red you know we all have a different reaction to a particular sort of thing uh we all feel that that uh, example of happiness you know the, our sensation of happiness is uh is all different and we learn what these things are we don't come with these ingrained or, or predefined we learn what they are so when we are young and something happens And people are smiling and and maybe jumping up and down and hugging and that sort of thing. And somebody says, oh, we're all so happy. And if this is the first time you've ever experienced happiness, then that will give you an idea of what this word happiness means. But it's going to mean whatever you interpreted that event to be. You see, it's your own interpretation of what was going on there. Well, people seem to be having fun. They seem to be smiling. Everybody is having a good time, so that's what happiness is. So we learn words and we attach experiences to them, meaning to them. And because we, if we all live in the same culture, then we tend to come up with very similar ideas of what's red, what's happiness, and other sorts of things. And we have feelings. The ability to feel is also just an innate function of consciousness. Consciousness can have feelings. It's part of being conscious. Okay, you can, you know, it's, it's probably, uh, you know, part of that part of consciousness that does assessments. This is good. This is not good. You know, this is taking us closer to our purpose. This is taking us further away. Getting closer to your purpose feels good because that's your purpose. So, some of the feelings, you know, may come out of our experience, but the ability to feel is just the nature of consciousness. So yes, you can say that some people are, um, uh, you know, that you just can't, um, be kind. That's well, not exactly what you said. Um, uh, you talked about the thing I said with, with, uh, with fear that you don't intellectualize fear. Fear lives at the being level. Fear is something that you feel, okay, and kindness can be something that you feel as well. If you do something and it's kind, and other people like it, and you feel good about it, feel good about yourself. Well, that's your ability to have feelings. That's another context, but which you can put your experience. You can put your experience in a in a feeling space, which is our intuitive space, or you can put it into an intellectual space, which is people sounded happy and they were smiling and they were jumping up and down. See, that would be your intellectual space. The feeling space is how did that make you feel? You see? So we have those two intellectual and our intuitive, our intuitive side. The intuitive side also is the, is the feeling side of us. Okay. what what was the other, what were some of the other well, questions? Donna? I
0: think you've, you've answered his, uh, question, are emotional qualities an aspect of consciousness that cannot be explained? Um, He is is saying that you explained one of the few assumptions of MBT is that consciousness exists. He asked, do you need to add that emotional qualities are an aspect of consciousness that cannot be explained, but just have to be accepted. But I think you have, you have, you have explained that his, his question is, seems to be focused more on the avatars' experiences and those sort of intellectual, those, those memories in that sense, but not the accumulated quality received by those, those experiences, I think.
2: Yeah, well, the idea that emotions cannot be explained, of course, you can explain them to some extent. You know, it's based on experience. It's based on the fact that we, we process our experience and come to conclusions about that experience. And some of those conclusions maybe make us feel better than other parts, you know, according to what our purpose is and, and our experience. So feeling is a, is a very complex thing. But what I was saying is that the capacity to feel is a, is integral to consciousness. The ability to feel, that's part of the way we process the information. We process it into, into our intellect and into our feeling space. Those are two complementary spaces. You know, here are the facts. This is what happened. And how do I feel about it? How did it make me feel? And how you feel about it depends on your own experience and your own interpretation. It doesn't, it's, it's not that each feeling comes pre-recorded you know, in consciousness, is that your feelings are developed over time. But the capacity to feel is an intrinsic part of consciousness that needs no further explanation. You know, it's just that's just part of consciousness, just like awareness. Feeling is another part of awareness. You know, awareness isn't just intellectual awareness, it's feeling awareness. So when you say consciousness is defined as awareness, well feeling and intellectual are just two different aspects of awareness and they both define consciousness.
0: Thank you Tom and fun IUOC if that didn't answer your question, you've been invited onto to the fireside chat
2: to discuss it us. <laughs> Yeah, there were okay. just too many questions there for me to deal with all of them. Um, it's
0: complex and it's, and it's interesting.
2: Yeah, um, but it is very interesting. So so if that's not a good answer, then please come on and, and then we can kind of have conversation about it. And uh, I think it would be an interesting topic to take up.
0: All right. Thank you. Um, we're going to move on now. We've, we've told you about the experiments. Uh, Mark, you've joined, just joined us. So please uh if you're if you're around, go ahead with your questions.
1: Hey Tom. There you are. <laughs> Hi, Mark. Uh first of all, I want to say thank you so much for MBT and the book. It's really been a great learning tool for my growth. Appreciate you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, Mike, I have a lot of questions, but my first one is how do we as avatars or consciousness perceive information? For example, say a contrail coming from an airplane is information. Do we perceive it from the perspective that we are sitting in the airplane? We think we're standing still and the contrail is moving behind us at 500 or away from us at 500 miles an hour. Or is our perspective that we're from the, we're standing on the ground looking into the sky, seeing the contrail standing still, but the airplane is flying away from it at 500 miles per hour
2: that just depends on you know your sense data
1: huh.
2: it's just a matter of your sense data if you're on the airplane your sense data sees this wispy smoke you know moving away from you because at that point you your what your coordinate system your location is on the airplane going 500 miles per hour but you don't feel that you don't sense that but you can see that the that the uh, the white uh, vapor is receding is moving away from you from the ground you see it differently so you you get different sense data depending on how you look at things you know you get different sense data if you're standing on uh, you know if there's a, a, a crash and you have a person standing on each of four corners let's say it's a crash a crash at an intersection And you get people standing on each of the four corners. They'll all see something different because their perspective is different. Some of them will see some things and some of them will see different things. So what happens is you have a data stream that is sent to consciousness that says that data stream contains the information that that avatar's senses pick up. That's what the data stream is. It's to mimic, you know, it's what the avatar's senses would pick up if the avatar had senses, you know, that's the, that's the thing. And you get that data, then you get to interpret it according to your own experience. And if you don't have any experience about it at all, you really don't have any way to interpret it. You don't know what it is. You maybe just see it. Well, gee, there seems to be steam coming out of the back of the airplane. I hope we're not on fire. You know, you may have no experience of a contrail or, uh, how that might be made or what's going on inside that jet engine that would, uh, that would cause that, uh, you know, that vapor stream. And in which case you don't know how to interpret it. It Just seems like there's something leaking out of your airplane that's moving away from you, which would seem odd. So it's, it's, a, that's all that's going on is you get a data stream which explains and describes, I guess describes is better, describes what the avatar is experiencing through his five senses and then you get to interpret that data in terms of your own knowledge under, and understanding your own experience.
1: I guess my qu- question would be if that information and the data stream is light. Is that light moving towards us or away from us? You know, speed of speed of light, you know, planks, distance, how how is that information coming into the data stream?
2: The data stream does not depend on on physical process. This data stream is consciousness to consciousness. Okay. We're all part of this consciousness thing. There's no distance involved. So there is no Uh, propagation of information through consciousness. Propagation requires a concept of space and within consciousness there, there is no space. Now within the virtual reality where we've defined space, okay, now we have a 3d virtual reality we call the physical universe. Now it takes, uh, you know, time for light to move from point A to point B. And it can only move as fast as, as one pixel of distance for one pixel at a time. And it just can't move any faster than that. Mm-hmm. So that's happening at the physical level. But now once that physical calculation is done and the computer says, okay, this avatar would have seen this, this, and that. Based on that avatar's eyeballs, you know, are they're nearsighted or farsighted, you know, what all the other variations it may have in its sensory um, abilities, all of that gets played into it too. And then that data then is in, that data is in consciousness. That description of what that avatar senses would see is in consciousness. That's computed. And now that data is sent to the consciousness that's the player. And that has no has no distance, has no uh, uh, transfer rate or anything else. It just is in consciousness. Consciousness information seems to uh, um, well. We might say that it does travel one increment of of uh, distance, if you will, distance in quotes, because we don't really know how to frame the concept of distance in consciousness. But you can say that it might do that, but if it does, it's doing this at the um, frequency of the system, not of the virtual reality. So the virtual reality is one, you know, delta X per delta T, because that delta T is, is not but so big in that system. That's our physical reality. When you move into consciousness, that delta T is much, much smaller. So if you think of, of that, that consciousness is a data system and data systems have to move data, then it can move it, but at a much, much faster rate, maybe billions of billions of billions of billions of times faster because its clock rate is fast. But rather than try to get into the details of the kind of the architecture of consciousness, which I don't know enough about to make details, I'd prefer to just say space isn't something that computes within consciousness. it's just not something that's necessarily there. It's not going to be like our space okay it's not the same as as physical space is to us. It would be a different sort of sort of concept and yes it may have to it may have to uh, do things at its own cycle rate, but to us that would be pretty much instantaneous
1: um, I've got a follow up question. Okay. Go ahead. If our virtual reality does act like a computer simulation, do we have a synchronization function um, so it doesn't cause a race condition um, within our VR? Um, is, that, so, is that possible? Tell me.
2: What's a race condition?
1: Race condition is so the so the so the bits of information don't jumble up. It's a clocking mechanism, a clocking cycle, a data synchronization cycle.
2: Well, I don't know enough about that detail to answer that question other than just a general answer, which is if there's a problem with data, you know, getting wadded up because of timing, then the system would have had to solve that problem. Okay. And and you know if that w- if that happens and it becomes an issue then it would need a way to solve that now whether it is an issue I don't know uh, remember the the delta t and the delta x in our physical space is, is very um, low res compared to consciousness space so consciousness has billions of billions of cycles. Between every delta T that increments our virtual reality. So it's not like, you know, that delta T is for, is all consciousness and all virtual realities. That's just local to our virtual reality. That's this universe. Other, other virtual realities can have other delta Ts and yeah, other delta sure. Xs and other resolutions. But, you know, every system that creates a virtual reality, if it's an information system, it has to have a faster processor, if you like. It has to have a, a, a smaller delta T than the system it creates. Mm. It, cre- it can't create anything that's a higher resolution than it is itself. So you have that, you know, you have that aspect of it as well. So you have many, many cycles that consciousness has between cycles of this rendering this virtual reality. So in that case, I don't, I can't imagine that data would get clogged up or somehow, you know, they'd have problems with, with throughput that you would, that you would have this issue because this would be like us making a simulation of something that was relatively slow moving. You know, we'd have lots and lots of processor speed compared to the slow moving simulation that we're doing. And in that case, Things aren't likely to get bottled up. Timing isn't likely to be a problem. So I think that's, that maybe is an answer to your, to your question. It's probably not an issue because of the differences in, in, uh, uh, processing speed from the source to the, to the virtual reality.
1: Okay. Our, our our personal computers have a, a data synchronization aspect to them. So my question was wondering if, if this kind of the microcosm of a larger system, then this would probably have already been taken care of. Uh, yes, if
2: it's a problem, it's been taken care of. And yes, you're right. It is kind of a microcosm of the larger of the larger system, but it's dealing within physical space, so it's got all the limitations of the rule set. Mm-hmm. And consciousness doesn't have the limitations of the rule set. Okay. The thing, the thing that creates the virtual reality, is not necessarily constrained by the rule set that's used to define that virtual reality. You see, it's it doesn't have to abide by the same rules. So even though they're similar in that they're both processing functions, um, they, they're working in different space. So the, the ones that's in our physical uh, reality, virtual reality, that is going to have a lot more constraints than computing in general without you know with much fewer constraints And um,
1: my last question is um, we have isotopes you know in, in our in our virtual reality where certain elements are the same elements but have different you know atomic weights is this a result of the probability distribution and is the is a probability distribution really how the LCS knows it's sending the right frequency into our virtual reality does it act like a center frequency modulation where if it pings the edge that's really kind of know how the signal that it's sending is correct
2: what do you mean by by sending uh, a signal into our virtual reality
1: information comes into our um uh into our virtual reality
2: well uh, information doesn't come to virtual reality information comes to consciousness and consciousness interprets it as a virtual reality
1: okay so the information that's coming into consciousness that we interpret that is interpreted mm mm-hmm. Is the probability distribution because it's more, is it like a center frequency modulation where if things, things come into the fat part of the curve mostly and the outer edges are kind of how it defines, for example, uh, carbon or, you know, and, uh, any sort of elements have, have isotopes associated sure. with them.
2: Right. Uh, and they occur at certain uh, percentages.
1: At certain percentages. Yeah. Yeah. And that, right. That looks like a probability distribution.
2: It does indeed look like a probability distribution. Yeah. Yes, and and it's because of the rule set. Okay. Because of the rule set, there are multiple possibilities the way things can stick together, you know, the things that that will work, the things that are stable. Mm-hmm. And depending on how that rule set works, it turns out that say a certain isotope of carbon is a, you know, a 3% Possibility and a different isotope may be a 20% possibility. You know, that sort of thing. So as far as natural uh, occurrence goes, and then you get maybe buckyballs, which is different. Now that's a molecule, not a, not an atom or an isotope, but those don't occur very often in nature, but they can be made. And I'm sure they do occur maybe somewhat at a very extremely low probability, but they can, they can be encouraged to form. You know, we if we do things, and yes, that's all basically probabilities that are generated out of the rule set. Now, the way that often works is that the rule set is primarily deterministic. It's the rules, but there's a fair amount of probability or randomness that's part of that rule set because there are things that are just random processes like when an atom decays you know it's, it's, the atom decay is not put on a schedule it's a random process so there are random processes the way things work and those random processes are part of the rule set but except for those the, major, the, the majority of the rule set is deterministic this is the way how you know this is how things work that's basically the physics but sometimes they can work this way and sometimes they can work that way and sometimes they align themselves up in these percentages and all of that then is part of the possibilities of the rule set being what uh, you know it, it branches out like that because of the randomness of the possibilities. You know, so you have probabilities and possibilities, and where you have a lot of possibilities, they all aren't going to be equal in their probabilities. So all those possibilities have probabilities of different sizes, and then when Somebody here makes a measurement. When somebody here goes in and and looks at something, what happens is you get a a random draw from the probability distribution of the possibilities. So in that case, you're more likely to draw out those things that are more probable and less likely to draw out things that are improbable. But occasionally, you just draw out something that's very improbable. And that's just a kind of a, a weird thing that seems, well, you know, We don't get that very often, but every once in a while we do. That's why you have things like tunneling, you know, tunneling diodes, is that uh, the probability that that particle is outside of that uh, energy well that contains it is maybe one in a million. But if you've got a billion or 10 billion particles in there bouncing around, well, one in a million happens enough to give you a small current, you know, and that's then the leakage, you know, out of the well. That's supposed to be impossible. Well, it's not impossible. It's just very unlikely. See, that's you know that's how we get those sorts of things. So those unlikely things do occur one in a million. But if you got enough, it's something you can measure. It actually becomes important.
1: Does that answer your question,
0: yeah, Mark?
1: That's, yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Mark. Um, we have a new member with us today, a new guest, Adrian. Adrian asks, could Tom give us his opinion on cryptocurrencies, especially the Bitcoin movement and the blockchain technology, and whether he, and further, whether he thinks that the cryptocurrencies will replace ordinary money in the future?
2: Well, yeah, I do have an opinion on those. Um, it's uh- a little off topic here, but it's, a, it's interesting. I, I think it's a very interesting subject. And that is you know, Bitcoin, the idea of cryptocurrencies, are one of these things that has uh, a, an upside and a downside. It's got a wonderful upside that basically takes um, banks out of the equation, makes the financial transactions simpler, more straightforward, uh, it basically levels the playing field for a lot of different players. So it's got some good attributes to it. It's something that's hard to suppress. It's hard to manipulate. It's hard to cheat. It uh, has all those advantages. But on the downside, it's got a dark side as well. And the dark side is that this ability to be anonymous in all of your financial transactions also is a huge enabler for those who would like to slink in the background and not be noticed in other words for criminals of all sorts so what um, used to be called money laundering which is where you take money that was tainted because it was ga- it was gained illegally and then launder it which means make it so that it's no longer trackable to that taint you know that is illegal but basically with bitcoin that solves that problem all the money's laundered <laughs> Any money, however you get it, no matter what the source or illegal or illegal, it's just as good as any other money. So Bitcoin is like the, uh, you know, the optimal money laundering scheme. It, uh, again, it enables people to uh, to uh, buy and sell things that are damaging and hurtful, things that are illegal, things that uh, are not uh profitable for the society. So it's got this upside and downside to it. Now, if we were all well-developed, well-evolved consciousnesses with low entropy, where we weren't interested in exploiting the dark side, the dark potential, then something like the cryptocurrencies would be terrific. It would open up freedom of expression and freedom of information, Kind of better than anything else. At least the idea, kind of the the blockchain concept, opens up, um, makes it difficult for people to suppress information. Okay, and that's a good thing. So how do I feel about it? I feel you know ambivalent in the sense I see its good parts, but you can't get the good parts without the bad parts. And right now the bad parts tend to be. As big and as what can we say? Um, they affect our culture and our society probably as much, if not more, than the good parts. So right now, if you look at Bitcoin, you might say that it was a net negative, depending on on where you are. And that's if you if you understand what's called the dark the dark internet. You know that negative side of it. So I don't know, you know, not, that's just me making that up. You know, you'd have to do a lot of research to actually say that with some conviction. So I don't think that in the near future, it's likely to become uh, standard, all the currencies in it. I don't think we're grown up enough. I don't think we as human beings have evolved sufficiently to care enough about each other to deal with the with the dark side of this just yet. And the dark side in a society full of people wound up in fear is pretty dark, and uh, the light side and the good side of it is actually pretty uh, pretty good. It's it's about freedom, and that's a good thing. But I don't think we're ready for it just yet. We got to grow up some, or we have to have ways of of um, dealing with it that help reduce the dark side but i don't know that there really is because it's you know it's like any other kind of technology you take a gun you know the gun isn't an immoral thing or a moral thing it can be used for good it can be used for bad so would we be better off without guns is the bad that we get from it worse than the good that we get from it well that's the kind of choice that we're going to have to make in our culture about these cryptocurrencies does the good outweigh the bad or does the bad outweigh the good? And if the bad outweighs the good, then we may decide to, to, to ban it, to make it illegal. We may decide to ban guns and make them illegal. You see, it's one of those kinds of things. So you look and see how does it affect the culture overall? And then the culture is going to have to come with terms, terms with it. And right now the culture isn't coming to terms at all. It's just, it is. And it's doing whatever it does. It's got its dark side and its upside. And nobody's really trying to rein it in just yet. But will somebody well get to the point where the dark side is, they think, is more than the upside and they'll want to get rid of it and other people will fight to keep it because they see the good side and how our culture will work that out? Who knows? But I don't think we're ready to go to go there yet uh, with that being our major way of transferring money. That's too bad. It would be nice if we were, but I'm not sure we're ready for that yet.
0: Okay, thank you, Adrian. He may have another question, um, and we can uh, bring that up later. Right now, we'll go to Carolyn.
3: I wanted to ask since um, I am in, I have a new job, and it's kind of I kind of have to deal with like a lot of um, businessmen and some tend to be also very uh kind of narcissistic or like have narcissistic tendencies and uh it's usually it's uh, something like that happens because they got rejected in their childhood and they didn't get as much love as they needed so i kind of wanted to know how to what is the best way to deal with those people like Is it the best way to just like give them what they actually long for? Like to be lovable and kind? Or do they also kind of need some harsh truth? Like to tell them that things are not the way they think and not everything turns around them?
2: I think you deal with these people in the same way you deal with everybody. And that is... First, you have to realize they are the way they are, right? This is just them. And then you have to accept them that that is that is the way they are. And they're not gonna change unless they're ready to change themselves. So you can probe a little bit about that change. You can maybe offer just a little sliver of, of advice you know about uh, it not being all about them all the time, or that uh, consideration of others might be a you know a good a good thing for them to think more about. But you'd have to do that very gently. And if they push it away, if they back off, and they don't like that, they don't accept it, then I'd leave it alone because you can't change somebody if they're not ready to change themselves. It's just mm-hmm. the nature of people. So then. You have to deal with them because you work with them and they're part of your you know, daily life in your job. What you do then is you accept them, say that's the way they are. And because you understand that's the way they are, you can be careful not to do or say things that are going to trigger that, that narcissism. So you be a little careful about how you interact with them and don't kind of lead them to a space where The narcissism would be the, you know, would would be the reaction. So you have to understand them well enough to not push their narcissistic buttons. To not, uh, you know, make that something that is, is, um, you know, the way they're going to interact with you. And if they do interact that way with you, then you need to accept the way it is. Don't take it personally. Um, you may or may not decide it's worth to say anything back to them about, you know, that was not, that wasn't appropriate or that's not a good way to go, but that's up to you to decide how much you can say and how much you just have to leave alone. So you don't let it affect you. Don't take it personally. Deal with it in a way that minimizes the problem, but maximizes your ability to get the job done, whatever the job is. So if they start off on something that is, headed into a, uh, you know, a uh, narcissistic rant of some sort, well, you may just change the subject, or you may jump to the end point, or if you, in the, in the uh, long run, if all of your attempts to work with the person fails, then I guess the final thing you have to, you, you can do is try to avoid them as much as possible. You know, ask to be moved to a different branch or, uh, you know, work with somebody else or try to avoid them. But sometimes in life you can't avoid people like that because sometimes it's your mother. You know, sometimes, you know, it's your sister. Sometimes it's your boyfriend or your, you know, your wife or your husband. So we don't always get to walk away from them and avoid them. It's easy if we can. But when we have to work with them, we work with them with caring you have to still care about them it's who they are then you deal with it in the most positive way possible you don't try to fix them unless they want to be fixed and they're ready to fix themselves then you can deal with that you don't uh have to talk to other people about how awful they are that just that just makes the whole situation uh polarizes the situation makes everything worse so you just keep that to yourself Try to say and, and be and act in ways that diffuse the problem without feeling angry or upset or getting your own fear energized. Accept it. It's the way they are. Now deal with it in a positive way. So that's just general advice for everybody, whether, whether they're narcissistic or, or, you know, however they might be. That's just the general good advice for dealing with relationships. Let, let people be. Don't have to fix them. Don't have to tell them how wrong they are. Don't have to point out their, their errors. Don't have to point out why they're making things less efficient or why they're a problem. Just work with them in the most positive way you can without any negative feelings toward them.
4: Okay, thank
2: you. Well,
0: Thanks, Carolyn. Uh, Cheryl, you please go ahead with your question next. Nice to have you here.
4: Well, I'm always glad to be here with such fine beings (laughs) um the last time that we spoke um one of the last times we we had talked about the relationship between right and left brain people and I'm in a left brain right brain relationship and you basically told me that well you told me leave him alone and (laughs) and that they are the way they are. And as I started changing how I was interacting, I realized that it wasn't just about just that relationship. It was about <laughs> the whole time tr- of me trying to fit into a, a left brain world that I didn't fit into. And I couldn't understand what was happening because I thought we were all human beings and we all thought, like, uh, you know, similarly, at least. And so then I realized that I was kind of taking some of that out on him and I didn't know it. And mm-hmm. then I realized that once I, once I took a very smart man's advice and left him alone and stopped trying to explain to him why I process the information the way I do and why I do the things I do, the whole thing just changed. And it turned into something that I don't. It's it's a foreign landscape to me, but it's okay because it's a lot better. Nobody's upset. <laughs> yeah. And,
2: yeah. Go ahead. Well, it often works that way. Once you once you remove, you know, your part of the of the uh, problem, because in a relationship, usually both people bring part of the problem, you know, to the surface. And when you take your part of the problem away. Then sometimes, many times, the other part of the problem just kind of disappears all by itself. It's a <laughs> it's a struggle of egos, often a struggle of of people just seeing the world different ways. And rather than struggle with it, just accept it that that is the way it is, and don't judge it and say, well, this way's right, but that way's wrong. You know, because what we all say is my way's right and your way's wrong. You know, my way makes sense and your way doesn't make sense we have to get over that and let people just be who they are and then they can let you be who you are you can let them be who they are and then you can get down to the really fun parts of sharing and and you know having a great relationship because you're not fighting over things that are both just you know ego versus ego
4: yes and what i found is that i was i was not really able to accept our differences i wasn't able to accept his differences because of all that other baggage from years ago of trying to deal with the left brain people in our system. And so what I, what I figured out is that I, I didn't, you know, really think about the good part of the way he is. And instead I've been focusing on that and it's been working so much better because I'm not in this resentful state. And it's, it's a completely different relationship. And I think that for a lot of people, you know, when we get into those ego struggles, I think that the biggest piece that kind of diffused the situation was me accepting him the way he is, not how I needed him to be or or needing him to understand me. Um, now we just laugh about it and we don't understand each other and it's okay we both accepted just the way it is. And it's been a lot funnier because mm-hmm. instead of getting that funny look and then trying to explain ourselves, it's like, wow, I don't even know where you just went then. It must've been fun. <laughs> and so it's just changed our whole relationship. And I just want to tell you, thank you for patiently working with me on that. You had to tell me 18 times until I finally figured it out, but I think I finally did. And I just want to tell you thank you. And, and everybody needs to know that, that we can all do this. We can.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's right.
4: just not easy. Thank, Thank you, Cheryl. Cheryl. Yeah.
0: Um,
4: Hi. I, I, I had one le- one more little thing. Um you had also on another thing, you'd also told me that that I needed to do things and be kind and give to other because I want to. And you told me you said that to me several times, and so I started looking at that. And I I thought that when I was being kind and and doing for other, because I like that, I I was a nurse my, my whole career. So I thought that a lot I was doing that because I wanted to and because I like to. And I was sitting out under my tree and I just realized that all of a sudden I could sense this river. It wasn't like a little stream. This was like a river that went all the way down the ocean and built an ocean <laughs> of resentment about everything. And it was completely out of my awareness. And it really took me off guard because it's like, oh, my gosh, how could all that been there? And I was not even aware of it. Um, I did help my family out when I was young. I helped raise a couple of my siblings. And I think that and I, I I wasn't allowed to say, I don't want to do this. I just had to do it. And so I was doing a lot of things, I think, out of that place of being conditioned in that way. But mm-hmm. in in putting that out of my awareness, it disabled me from being able to see it. So how in the world are we supposed to work out things like terrible rivers of resentment that we are unaware of. And I, I was doing all the other things of, you know, if I get upset, to, you know, deal with it like a fear, but resentment was completely off the radar. I, I would not have considered myself a resentful person at all. Most people I interact with, they, they like me and they laugh at me because I like to play and have fun. But I didn't sense anything like that. But then when I found it, it was really significant. Yeah. And then I could yeah. see all the ways that it was making every so a lot of things that I didn't want to be terrible, terrible. It was getting yeah. terrible.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, that's pretty That's pretty uh, normal in the sense that most people, particularly in their careers and, and in their relationships with others, they do the things that they think they should do. They do the things they think are expected and they do the things that they think will make other people like them and make other people approve of them. So you go to work, and, you know, you're in a caring profession that's nursing, but you do the things you do because if you didn't do them well, then the doctors and the other nurses would think poorly about you, so you have to make sure you do things for that reason. And, you know, we, we worry about other people's opinion of us, and what happens is when you live a life that's that's worked out of your in, intellect that way, doing what you think you should do, doing it the way you think people expect you to do it, meeting other people's expectations, that's the wrong reason for doing things. Like I said, you should be kind, you should be caring because you want to be kind and caring just because you care about people. See, so that's, that's where you should be with that behavior. And, yes, you do have to meet certain standards. If you're a nurse, you can't just do it any way you want. You know, you have protocols and processes that are put there to minimize mistakes and errors and things. And you have to, you know, look at all those and understand them and do them. But it's a, it seems like a very small difference in perspective as to whether you're doing it because you really want to or because this is the way you think you have to. But there's a huge difference in the way you feel because if you feel you're always doing things because you have to, not because you want to, then resentment does build up and you begin to get a little cranky, um, you know, in your career and you get a little snippy and uh, you, you know, you find other people who aren't doing it right and you talk badly about them and you have all this office politics going on. And a lot of that is just because most of the people in the office are doing what they think they have to. They're not really there being authentic. They're there being who they think they have to be. And whenever you're somebody other than who you are authentically, there's a certain amount of resentment that's going to seep in under the hood, like you say, out of sight, where you don't notice it because people don't like being the way they are not. That's extra work. doesn't feel good. So the way that you notice it, though, is you find that feeling, you find that negative emotion, that negative feeling, and then you trace it back to the source, which is what happened to you sitting under that tree. You suddenly were aware of some negative feelings. Well, I really didn't like that. I really didn't, you know, I really resented that. And as soon as you saw that negative feeling, well, then you got the flood because that. You saw a whole lot of negative feelings that were there and had been there for a very long time and storing up until there was a a tank full of them there. And that's kind of a typical thing. But didn't it feel good once you let them go? Once you processed them and said, all right, okay, I accept that. That's just the way it was. I did those things. But you know, I really helped my siblings that I took care of them. They would have been a lot worse situation if it wasn't, you know, if I hadn't been there for them and it was growing for me. I learned a lot taking care of other people. No, I couldn't go play and do what I wanted to do. And, and, uh, that upset me and, you know, made me resentful, but I learned a lot. I grew a lot in that process of that responsibility that I had to step up to even before I was really old enough to step up to it. And my, my siblings, they learned a lot too, because, they had to, uh, you know, learn things in that particular relationship as well. And then you see the whole thing as just an opportunity for everybody to learn and for everybody to grow up. And, ah, well, it's just the way life is supposed to be. Life is supposed to be full of opportunities of people to learn and grow up. And you did it. And now that you let go of the resentment, all the learning and growing up is still there, and the resentment isn't and now you're so much better off than you would've been had you done anything else so you're doing it right you're uncovering it you're peeling that onion back one layer at a time and just keep doing it it takes you know it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience to get there but the the key thing is that feeling that's negative something that doesn't quite feel right and we tend to stuff those out of sight where we don't see them because we don't want to deal with them, because we don't have time to deal with them. We don't have the space to deal with them. They would just cause trouble if we dealt with them. But eventually you grow up to the point that you can deal with them in a way that doesn't hurt other people. And that's when it's time for you to deal with them. All right, you got to that point, you felt the feeling, you unloaded it, great. You're better off for it, you've evolved your consciousness, and now you're ready to go on to the next step.
4: Oh yeah. boy
2: <laughs> yeah. so that's just the way it works yeah good good job,
4: thank you.